Well, it does my heart so good to hear the story of Christmas being told to kids on stage at Christmas time. Doesn't that like do your heart good? And Dustin needs to um, do that every year from here on out, I think. He was just so good. He was so good at that. So good. Well, should we vote? We're not a voting church, but anyone think we should, we should vote on that? Yeah. Um, we tell our kids so many stories at Christmas time. We, in the Jacobson household, have had uh, Christmas movies playing nonstop the past, you know, 20 days. Uh, we, we show our kids The Grinch and Charlie Brown, and the other day we, we watched uh, my wife and I Home Alone and brought, it back, brought us back to our childhood, and um, that movie Elf, a very merry mix-up, for those of you who are stuck in the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> not for kids, guys. It's not for kids. It does my heart good to hear the Christmas story told to kids at Christmas time, because in some sense it comes to us through childlike ears. If you don't look closely at the story, you might imagine this scene with blurry edges as if it was a vignette of a myth passed down so many times that our collective consciousness assumes that it's real. In those days becomes once upon a time. And we're brought into a shivering cold world amid this miraculous uh, conception causing the plight of a young couple in love, but they're unfairly alienated from their family. And no one but Mary seems to know what's going on. If we're not careful, our aging, cynical souls might watch children receive this story and imagine that it were only a fairy tale for the undiscerning among us, a story for kids. And that's why I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to dig in with you today. This story from Luke chapter 2, which is recorded in God's word and put there for more than just some sort of fable-like warm feeling. My whole aim today is to remind us that in the cheesy words of preachers gone by, that this story is history. That is his story. This is God's story of his miraculous power and might at work and at play in history. Nobody refutes the claim that Jesus existed. That's the, 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 the historical evidence of Jesus. It's the, it's the least debated part of the Christian faith. But to be sure, Luke includes the historical context of the world to which Jesus was born. I want to tag this text in our exchange today, the, uh, the, the title of this sermon, that he came in time. He came in time. I don't know if you at all of our campus could, could say that out loud together. He came in time. That's the, really the, the title of this message and the first point that I want you to see here in the birth story told by Luke in the Bible. It, he came in time, and this is extraordinary. Not that God would be born, but that God would be born on earth locally, geographically, with all the pinpoint accuracy of a modern-day GPS. So verse 1 of Luke chapter 2 tells us this. Look with me. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Just, we're going to hold on to that right there. It was during the reign of Caesar Augustus, one of the most important emperors in the Roman Empire. Now, no, 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 listen, listen. HP, don't tune out on me right now because this is a historic lesson, a history lesson. And you two all here, you all ready for a little history lesson? Because I'm, I'm, I'm working here. I'm coming for you in a moment. But we got to get through this in a second, okay? So, so Caesar Augustus, the most, probably the most important emperor in the Roman Empire. Augustus was 
formerly named Octavian. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, one of the foremost emperors who also was nicknamed the Divine Julius. When Julius died, Octavian emerged as the supreme leader of the Roman Empire, and because he was the son of Julius, he was called Divi Filius. That was actually printed on the coinage in Rome in that day. Divi, meaning divine, Filius. Uh, uh, that's the son, son of the divine. We would say it in English, the son of God. Augustus did many things to make Rome great again. Towards the end of his life, around 14 AD, when Jesus was just a teenager, uh, historians have him on record looking out across Rome and saying, I found Rome bricks, but I made it marble. And to make Rome marble, Caesar Augustus centralized power in Rome, regulated commerce and trade, beefed up the military presence under the auspice of what he called Pax Romana, which was a marketing ploy. They called it the Peace of Rome. And countless historians beginning even in 100 AD uh, and all the way through today have jeered the fact that the peace of Rome came at a very violent cost. Rome had peace because it had a strong military and it needed a strong military to pay for the peace it wanted. To Caesar, peace was the absence of war. So what he would do is he would go and he would conquer a city with war and then he would declare over them peace. He'd say, we have come to take you over so that you might have peace. The peace of Rome is present. You now worship the Son of God in me, Augustus. To pay for these conquests, he would uh, ransack these towns and gain their money through taxes. This became Caesar's main governing issue. To strengthen the military required money and to get money required a military. Today, when our government wants money from us, we're set up with a social contract that says when we're taxed, we'll pay our taxes. Uh, and so the IRS, if you fail to pay your taxes, will send you a letter in the mail reminding you that there's such and such an amount outstanding or that you have failed to pay, and would you please kindly send payments. Back in Augustus' day, when you failed to pay your taxes, a Roman guard would show up at your door, threatening every inch of your life. To ensure that the system worked, governors or proconsuls were installed over the region. Enter Luke chapter 2, verse 2, Quirinius. Everybody, this is a fun name to say. You just need to say Quirinius. Can you say Quirinius? Go ahead. Every campus, go ahead and say it. I want to hear you, HP. Quirinius. Chances are you and I know a lot about Caesar Augustus, or at least know his name. Quirinius is probably lost in our modern day. No, no matter, we have tons of information on him. I'll give you just the high points very briefly. Quirinius um, started out as a Roman senator before he caught the eye of young Octavian, whose uh, ascendance to power and his construction programs required special ambassadors. They were called legates. And they went and exercised the authority of the emperor in newly conquered or particularly challenging regions. Jerusalem particularly would be one over the first century. And at the time of Jesus' birth, we have records that Quirinius was a legate in Syria. The word governor kind of fits this term, but we kind of tend to Americanize it, thinking that this is somebody who's got a little bit of power over a certain region. But, but a, a legate had absolute authority until the emperor showed up and wanted to do otherwise. At the time of Jesus' birth, we know that Quirinius was ruling here. And he was a temporary emperor. We know that Later on, Quirinius would, in A.D. 6, impose uh, 
monumental tax overhaul in Syria. He realized that he needed to send more money to Caesar, and so in AD 6, much later after the time of Jesus, Quirinius doubled or tripled the taxes on the Jews. You can imagine how that goes when you double or triple the taxes. People were outraged. They were angry. The name Quirinius was associated with a swear word. People knew Quirinius, mostly because they knew his census in AD 6. That's why, if you ever wondered why it's written so strange in Luke chapter 2, verse 2, Luke tells us that, that the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And he says this weird detail. He says this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Because the second registration is the one that everybody knew about. It was the one that everybody would have told their kids and blasted the Romans and tried to get their freedom from these occupiers. This one, when Jesus was born, was just the first of what would be many attempts to impoverish these people. So Luke tells us, you know Quirinius, but this is the first registration. You might be sitting there thinking, Pastor Dan, I don't know what type of illness Pastor Steve has, but certainly he could come preach with whatever it is after that history lesson, making me go to sleep here with some Augustus and Quinerius and who, I, can't, I live in Indiana, Illinois has got these governors, I can't even keep track of them and they're my neighbors. How am I supposed to keep track of all these Romans? Well, I want you to hang in here, I'm, I'm working here because, because this, uh, I bring this all out so you can consider the realness to the world in which Jesus was born. He was born in time. R.C. Sproul reminds us that this dimension of Jesus' story of his birth makes it quite different from all the other myths and fables that were going around in the ancient world. Zeus wasn't born on earth in history. Aphrodite wasn't born on earth in history. And Hercules was not born in the hill countries of Greece. But Jesus Christ was born in time. I promise I'm going to preach today, but I also hope that you promise to respond. I'm talking to you, HP. Cedar Lake, I don't know you. We're good. But HP, you listen up. He came. We can put him in the grand historical chronology of our story as humanity. He came as one of us in line of one of us to the world where each and every one of us live. He came in time. And here's Luke's point. This is the time that Jesus was born into. There was a most powerful man in the world named Augustus who people called the son of God. And he had as a henchman in the Syrian province a guy named Quirinius who was taxing the people. And in Luke 2... We see the situation, and then two, 2 verse 3, we're reunited with Joseph and Mary in the account of this situation. The census required registration because Augustus wanted to have his money, and Quirinius was empowered to uh, do whatever it took to get the people back so that they could be required to be taxed. Look at verse 3. It said, all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, and he was to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with trial, with child. There is no escaping the locality of what Luke is saying. 
that Joseph took his fiancée Mary with him on this arduous journey up the mountain to the shadow of Jerusalem to a small nothing town called Bethlehem. Luke reminds us of Mary's condition. He says that she was with child. She was pregnant. We, we believe because she has the baby while she's there that she's in her third trimester. I don't know if you've ever been pregnant and had a trip to take. Talk to your doctor. Said, but doc, you don't understand my work's requiring me. Doc, you don't understand my family's sick. Doc, you don't understand. And um, today, if your doctor's any good, they will sit you down in a chair and breathe the ever-loving love of God into you and say, you stay put. You try and get on a plane, no way. I, I was uh, talking with one of my friends. They came over uh, last weekend, and um, he was telling me the this outrageous story of how he was born that just literally three days prior to coming into the world, his mom snuck her way onto a flight and took a, a trip in the air because she wanted to get home. And then three days later, she was born. And the whole time she was on the airplane, she was knees shaking, biting her nails, trying to conceal her belly, trying to make sure nobody knew. This is, a, you know, the anxiety we can kind of sense in Mary. If you put yourself back in those days as her knucklehead fiancé says, hey, Mary, I know that you're pregnant, but can we take this trip together? I got to go. Augustus needs my name on a piece of paper so I can also give him my money. Will you come with me? And I wonder if Mary at this moment looked up to the heavens and said, God, it's one thing to bear your child, but couldn't you miraculously have given me a better man? Surely you could do that. But she goes. We imagine Mary plodding up the hill towards Jerusalem, stopping six miles from the city limits at a town called Bethlehem. This is her first journey that we think we know about to see her what would be new in-laws. Imagine that for a moment. Pregnant. Not married. Extremely traditional family. The whole town knows about it, and you're on your way to give Caesar his money. These are all the things that come to my mind. These are the things that I'm concerned about when I think about Luke's story. Maybe you're concerned about them too. Maybe you've had a child and you think to yourself, well, what was Mary's plan? What if the baby came early? How would she care for him? And isn't Luke a doctor? Shouldn't he be concerned with these things too? Why does all he give us is to say that they went up to, to, to Bethlehem and Mary was with child? And then verse 6, notice this. This is what he says. He says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And so we might sympathize with Mary's lack of sanitary conditions. We might sympathize with the plight of her travel. We might even sympathize with Mary and the social stigma she endured uh, being unmarried and pregnant. Yet for Luke, the important thing is that we have before us the most wonderful expression of hope for our lives. And these sh such short three words. He just simply says this, the time came. Now, here at Crown Point, they're not responding to me, but Hobart, I know you are. Because we have this thing going. And uh, maybe I'll preach a little bit on this. The time came. Because, friends, not only did Jesus come in time, but he came on time. He came at the right time. 
And I wonder if we could get Mary up here today and say, Mary, did Jesus come at the time that was convenient for her? I don't think she would have to wait but two seconds before she started laughing out loud and slapping me in the face saying, are you crazy? It was not a convenient time for me to have a child. I wonder if you talk to Mary's parents and say, hey, Mary, Mary's parents, do you think that this baby came on time? They would say, well, typically the time is actually nine months after they say, I do. If you were to ask the Jews of this day, hey, did this is now a good time for the baby who would be born savior of the world to come? Would, would they not say, no way, we needed him 300 years ago. You talk to Caesar Augustus and say, hey, today in one of the regions that you control, there is born a baby unlike any other who will change the course of history. Is now a good time for you, Caesar? And he'd say, well, I'm actually at the height of my political career right now. If he could come back later, that'd be fine. If you could talk spiritually to the demons, who Jesus does later in his life, and say, hey, uh, God is actually keeping good on his promise to send himself. Do you think now is a good time? Wouldn't they look at you and with probably a curse word or two say, oh, no. Now's not a good time. But for God, it was the right time. It was on time. It was his time. And how many times in our life do we have ourselves in an uncomfortable situation that we wouldn't otherwise prefer, and while our whole world is falling down around us, if only we could look at God's timeline and see that what he was doing in the midst of our destructive life was actually rebuilding the world. If God could speak to Mary he would speak words of comfort over her saying, yeah, I know it's a stall. I know it doesn't have a bed. Yeah, I know there's not even a crib, but I sent you with some clothes, and you'll be able to wrap that boy up, and we're going to keep the temperature a little warmer than it normally is. And, and hey, check this out. I got some visitors who are going to come keep you company as well. It may not be convenient for you, Mary, but this is the time it has to be now. And this baby came on time. The Bible uses a couple words in the Bible for time. I want to tell them to you because uh, what Luke says here about this phrase, and the time, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. is so important for us. In the Bible, if you want to mark time, you know, the recording of time, like this, the ticking of seconds off of a clock, maybe you're working at your shift and you want to know what time am I going to be done, the Bible uses a very specific word, the word chronos. It's the chronology. It's literally the marking of time or the, the event that happened. If you read a chronicle, that is literally a newspaper or something that tells the events that just happened. Chronos. It's a very specific general use of the word time. But the Bible, there's another word for time. It's the word kairos. At all of our campuses, would you just say that with me? Kairos. Kairos. Chronos is just basic time. The whole world is ticking. It's just a regular heartbeat of the earth. It's chronos. Things are happening every single second. But, but, but kairos, kairos is time that has a purpose, time that is significant, time that is a marker. Here's how this works. You come home from a long day at work, and you sit down at the table, and you talk to your spouse, and you, they say to you, well, how was your day? And you start listing off a bunch of chronos. Well, first I met this person for breakfast, and then I met this person for lunch, and then I took care of this thing over my one o'clock appointment, and, and your spouse stops you, and they say, well, but did anything happen today? They're asking the question, well, what about the kairos? What historic thing happened? What are the high points? Give me the highs today. 
And see, whenever God acts in the world, it's not just chronos, even though it's certainly that, but it is a moment of kairos. God has intervened to make the time important. And how can we not argue that this moment, this birth of this child, even here today, we still celebrate Christmas? Is, is Christmas still important? Amen. So we can all call this kairos. Everything is historical, but not everything is historic. I feel like you're not really with me. And so let me just bring this one step closer to our Chicagoland homes. I wonder where you were on uh, November 2nd, 2016, 11.47 p.m. Central Time. When Chris Bryant picked up a slow chopper two-hopper and threw a strike to Anthony Rizzo... And Pat Hughes was on the TV calling the play, and this is a direct quote. He says, and the throw, it's in time, and the Cubs win the World Series. I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a Sox fan, so that's fine. <laughs> that moment is a moment of chronos. Historically, it happened. Chris Bryant picked up the ball. Through it to Anthony Rizzo. He caught the ball, and that happened. Most of you watched it. It happened. Do I need to remind you? That happened. Some of you forgot. It did happen. But that moment was also a moment of kairos, significance, because that's the moment, that catch of the ball at first base was the moment the whole season ended and one team was victorious over all the others. Now some of you are really in the Christmas spirit thinking about that. We say that the time came for Mary to give birth. Luke doesn't actually use the word chronos or even the word kairos. You're like, well, thanks for the lesson then, Dan. It's a waste of time. Chronos that I'll never get back in my life. Luke uses a different word. He uses the word pleroma, which means the fullness of time. You have a cup of water on your desk. You could fill it to the brim. It's full, but it's not pleroma until that cup is flowing over with more water. It has an abundance of the thing that it was designed to hold. The time had been overflowing with expectation, and the time had come. I feel like i got to put this back in baseball terms for you so that you get this. Pleroma, it is kairos after a lot of chronos. So for this team that won the World Series, it was a moment of kairos, but it was also a moment of pleroma, wasn't it? A moment of a long amount of time waiting and waiting and waiting. I'm 32 years old, and I thought when I was born, the Cubs had certainly in recent memory won the World Series. So maybe we would just take a poll and say, how long is too long? 25 years for a team to go without winning the championship? 50 years? 75 sounds insane, doesn't it? That you could have a team that for 75 years doesn't win anything. Sounds crazy. 100 years. Now, you're talking pleroma. Time was full and overflowing with anticipation. 
that's the sense that we get here from Luke chapter 2, that while they were in Bethlehem, time had come to brim and spill over so that it was the right time for God to show up. Let me be honest, to talk about the fullness of time in the context of the Cubs winning the World Series doesn't do justice to the anticipation of the earth awaiting her king. And to compare the birth of Jesus with a baseball team is really to trivialize God. Because all the more, humanity had been yearning for God to arrive, crying out to him, seeking deliverance from the enemies of God. Yet God seemed to delay. But Luke clarifies that while they were in Bethlehem, the time came. That God was just waiting for the moment when the world had experienced sham peace at the hands of the false Son of God. One commentator, R.C. Sproul, said it this way, that it was no coincidence that this imperial decree of Caesar's happened to take place at this time, forcing them to make the journey to Bethlehem. Here is the most powerful emperor in the world acting out the decree of God himself. Caesar Augustus, in the final analysis, was a pawn in the hands of the Lord God omnipotent. And here's why he says that. is because we know, looking back into history, that, that Micah, what Micah says in Micah 5, verses 2, 4, and 5, say this. He says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall, become, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Then he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and he shall be their peace. See, not only did Christ come in time, but friends, Christ came on time. And while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to have the child. Praise God. He had been waiting for the chronos to match his kairos in his pleroma. And friends, Luke account, he gives us one more glimpse into the hope and joy and assurance that Jesus is our Savior here in Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And Cedar Lake, Hobart, and Crown Point, you guys with me right now? We got one more, one more point here. Because not far from where Joseph and Mary had delivered the baby, there were shepherds watching over their flocks of sheep. In the middle of the night, while the baby uh, was being born, uh, all was quiet and calm, and the shepherds were watching, and one angel burst out into the scene. It was the angel of the Lord shining like heaven itself. The shepherds were terrified, but the angel proclaimed peace with the shepherds, saying, I bring you good news, literally the gospel. I am heralding the gospel to you today, and it's going to turn your fear that you're feeling into insurmountable and unexplainable joy that will last you forever. He says, for Unto you is born this day, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger. I wonder, Crown Point, did you hear that? The Savior was born today. He is Christ the Lord. Today, for all people, the Savior has come today, eternity has arrived. 
Because Christ came in time, and he came on time, but he came for all time. He came for all time. Isn't this the meanings of the words Savior and all people and even to the shepherds unto you? Here we have the, the first gospel presentation is being preached by an unlikely preacher, an angel, in the middle of the night proclaiming great news to the most unlikely of a congregation, the shepherds who are just minding their own business on the outskirts of town, proclaiming the greatest news that the world would ever know, that here on Christmas Day, the Savior was born. Makes us ask the question, well, Savior of what? The angel says, well, of people. Well, what do people need to be saved from? Well, they need to be saved from themselves. They need to be saved from their sins. They need to be saved from eternal damnation in hell. But they need to be saved from God. And actually, if you look at the saving that the angel proclaims, it's actually way more positive than it is negative. The Savior is one who is going to not only redeem people from their lostness and their, uh, their trials and their oppression and their slavery to sin, but the Savior is one who is going to come and reunite the people back with God so that life can finally be what it was meant by God to be. They were saved out of chaos and put back into a right relationship with God. And here's the title of this baby that the angels proclaim forth. They, they call him Christ the Lord. Christ is a reference, to the, the Greek reference to the word Messiah, the long-awaited one that was chosen by God to redeem his people. This baby was the one who would vindicate God's people and set up God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The, the phrase, the Lord, it refers to his divine glory and majesty. The angels are no less proclaiming this infantile, mute crying baby to be the one who was chosen by God to initiate his sovereign redemptive plan for all people from here on out. He would be the greatest of all. And the whole host of God's army arrives on the scene in triumphant praise. They proclaim glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the shepherds go off to find the baby and notice these details in verses 16 and 7, 17 and 18. Luke says, they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, when they saw it, because they saw it, when the shepherds saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. I imagine Mary in that moment hearing the shepherds tell her, well, angels came to us and said that a baby was born to us tonight. I imagine in my unsanctified imagination, Mary kind of per perking up for a moment and saying, well, no, sirs, this baby was born to me. The angel came to me. I'm his mother. I'm his provider. I got what he needs. He's my firstborn son, and I am knit together with this baby. He is born of me and by me, and he's for me. But that's not what the angels said to the shepherds. The angels told the shepherds, Today in Bethlehem, the Savior has been born unto you. 
This is outrageous. Because Palestinian shepherds were the lowest class of folk in this day. I don't dare presume to even know what the modern day equivalent might be. We don't know the identity of these shepherds. Our best guess is that these are people who were shepherds guarding the flocks of sheep that would also be used in temple sacrifices. The point was that they were nobodies. The reason they were working as shepherds is because they were disqualified from any better job. They, they weren't even allowed to testify in the court of law. That's how uh, lowly they were thought of. So for the angel to say that this baby was born to you, shepherds, it doesn't ring true to the majesty of the Savior Christ the Lord, does it? You see, if Caesar Augustus was arriving in town, he probably would have sent word through Quirinius to make the way. All would know he was coming. A grand parade would be held through the town where you could behold the majesty of Caesar. And probably a banquet would have taken place with the who's who of that town afterwards. Everyone would have known he was arriving. But when God came to Bethlehem, he didn't reveal himself to the rich and powerful, but he chose the most impoverished to the lowest of society. And to reveal himself to the lowly people, he chose the greatest messengers, angels. Have you ever considered how absolutely unimaginable this pairing is? The most highest angelic being coming to the lowest earthly being. And our God didn't arrive in a palace with much pomp and circumstance. No, he came under the cover of darkness on a silent night. And he came to shepherds. To shepherds. Why did God choose to send the angels to the shepherds? Well, it's because Christ came for all time. He came to the lowest place in the lowest way so that all of humanity might relate with him. Not many are rulers, but all are shepherds. Not many are noble, but all are ignoble. Not many are rich, but all are poor. Martin Luther has an enduring Christmas sermon from 1530 that made, he makes a statement that God didn't show up to the religious elite who would have disbelieved the angel's message that a baby was born in Bethlehem to a peasant girl. No, instead, while the unbelieving ruling religious leaders were fast asleep, God chose to come to the humble shepherds whose hearts were open to the good news of great joy that was for all people. And coming to the shepherds, Christ came in the lineage of shepherds from all time. I'm reminded that Moses, when God spoke to him in the burning bush, was out tending sheep in the fields. I'm reminded that when David was anointed to be king, he was keeping watch over his father's flocks. I'm reminded of Amos, that shepherd who God activated to become a prophet. I'm reminded of the book of Psalms that says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why did God come to the shepherds? It's because the baby they found would one day call himself the good shepherd. Why did God choose to reveal himself to the shepherds? Because the baby they found would one day become the sacrificial lamb for the sake of the world. Why did God choose to send himself to the shepherds? I think this is honestly the thing that cinched the Christmas story as true in my book. It's because only God would do that. Only God would choose the outcasts, the neglected, the lowly, the disenfranchised, but the ones who were watching for him. If you were writing the story today, you would have said, 
In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all would know the baby Jesus. But God wrote it. That when this fake son of God was on the throne, I had my way and delivered myself into the world on a silent night when nobody was watching. And he came to us. I find it amazing. One of the most traditional or historic, historical things I do in my life at Christmas time is, is not the traditions that I think of, making my family's special Christmas bread or watching specific movies or even um, putting up a Christmas tree, which goes back generations. The thing we do at Christmas time that is so rich is simply this. We all become shepherds. I mean, here I am in 2018. Standing before you all proclaiming the same thing the shepherds proclaimed that first Christmas. The thing that has survived the generations is the message, the gospel message, the testimony of the shepherds. Ironically enough, the shepherds gave testimony today, thousands of years later, even though they couldn't give testimony in court, that they saw the baby who was born the Messiah. Born of a virgin, that Christ Jesus God himself has been born in the middle of Nowheresville, Palestine, to take away the sins of the world. Since he was born for all time, here we are today. Still in wonder and awe that God is this good to come to people such as us, shepherds as we are. The fact that he was born Savior for all people, it means that you and I don't have to be envious of the shepherds that midnight day. Midnight day? That midnight night. Whose whole lives were interrupted with the angelic announcement. Don't get me wrong, that'd be amazing. If you go back in any time, you know, you get this question. If you go back in time and meet one historic person, who would you meet? I would meet the shepherds at the moment when the angels were on the field pronouncing the good news that God had come. And then if I had it with me, you know, if I had the ghost of Christmas past brought me back there, I would go with them in haste to find the baby Jesus. But friends, check this out. Because he came for all time, we can go, we can see, we can hear the angels' voices. He has come for all time. The fact that you and I have met this Jesus in our own lives, not the little baby Jesus, six pounds, eight ounces, little baby Jesus, but the grown, perfect, spotless crucified Jesus, and even more, the resurrected Jesus, the one to whom it was no problem to come into this world to sausage himself, to wrap himself with flesh in this world, it was no problem to pick up his life after he'd been killed. The resurrected king resurrects us, doesn't he? The fact that you and I know what it is to have victory over temptation and to uh, gather together and to worship this king, even though we've never seen him with our own eyes, we've seen him with the eyes of our hearts. Even though we haven't beheld his personal glory, we've beheld the glory of what he can do. Even though here we are again at Christmas time, remembering the story of angels and shepherds, we all the more remember the day that you personally met him for the first time and he became Lord of your life. We join with the angels and the shepherds every Christmas time proclaiming the word to the world that better than Augustus, the true son of God has come and he has brought the true peace of God to us. He came in time. 
so you can put them in your history books. He came on time, so you can put them in your theology books. But he came for all time, so you can put them in your heart. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We trust you, O oh God. We are reminded today that this is not just some scene that has a vignette around it showing us the glory days of the earth, but Christmas is bearing forth its full weight of glory as you are bringing heaven to earth right before our eyes. And we thank you that you came in time, and you came on time, and you came for such a time as this.